Good morning. morning. We started a series a few weeks ago uh, looking at the life of Abram and Sarai uh, and ways that God used their lives um, in order to bless the world to the eventual coming of Jesus, right? That's what we started. But in order for God to use them, he first had to He had to call them away from everything that they had ever known and do this new thing in in their lives and through their lives. And all they had to go on was God's word, right? And in some ways, their journey with God um, and the way that God shows up in their lives teaches us, and even in the 21st century, even in 2022, it teaches us things about what it means for us to walk with the Lord. Because Abram and Sarah, one of the great things about this story in Genesis is that they didn't have impeccable faith, did they? They weren't perfectly obedient all the time. Um, And so God, nevertheless, was still faithful. And he often worked through them, and often he had to work in spite of them. And he shows up in these amazing places and amazing ways, and we catch these glimmers of the gospel. We catch these glimmers of how God intends to use them to bless the world through the coming of Jesus. In fact, our text today, in the strangest sort of ways, uh, actually does that very thing, where we catch this glimmer of the hope of the gospel found in Jesus, in this mysterious person named Melchizedek. And we find out that God's greater purpose is never off track, even though it might seem like it is for just a moment. So today we're going to start in Genesis 14. We're going to settle in there a little bit and get to Melchizedek. We're going to start in Genesis 13, verse 17 and 18. Hopefully you'll understand why I start there in a little while. But let me start in Genesis 13, verse 17 and 18. Then I'll jump to Genesis 14, 8 to 24. But let me, let me do that. Uh, I'll be reading out of the ESV. You can follow along in your pew Bible, but that is the NIV, so it might be a little different. But here's Genesis 13, 17 and 18. God said to Abram, Arise. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And then in Genesis 14, 8 to 24, it says, Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zobiam, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidium with Ketelaramur, king of Elam, title king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidium was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Anar. These are the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Ketelaramur and, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. 
he was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, I ask that uh, in whatever way you can, that you would use uh, me to uh, point people to Jesus this morning. I pray that nothing I would say or do or have said or, or left unsaid or undone would in any way hinder the work of your spirit. Instead, Lord, we would see Jesus, and we would ask, the Lord, that your spirit would stir within our hearts and open them and make us um, uh, able to receive what it is that you would have us to receive. I ask this in the powerful and the awesome name of Jesus. Amen. So this, uh, this text is one of those texts in the Old Testament that makes you grateful for the New Testament um, because of the names, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is much better than Kenilarimer. Goyim, right? But this text also reminds me, uh, it reminds me of the, the line from the great Scottish poet Robert Burns when he said, uh, the best laid plans of mice and men go off to rye. Because I don't think it was in Lot's long-range plans to be um, a spoil of war, right? I mean, if he had long-range plans. Our text opens up um, in, in chapter 14, where we have this list of nine kings, uh, four against five. It's what Wynne calls the Lord of the Ring text, right? <laughs> it sounds like that. It sounds like Tolkien, or Tolkien sounds like the Bible, right? But that happened in the ancient world, right, where you had these uh, vassal states that were required to pay some sort, of, sort of homage. They had to serve these other kings. That, that's kind of the situation that's going on. This, is, this text sort of starts this way, but it's been going on for about 14 years, probably before even Lot got to Sodom. This whole situation is going on between Ketelarimer and these three kings and these uh, king of Sodom and Gomorrah and these five kings over here. At some point, the five kings decide that they're not they're not going to do what they're supposed to do anymore. They're going to rebel. And in the 14th year, that's when Ketelarimer and these uh, four kings come, and they rout the five kings. We would have heard nothing about this, right? This would have been like something, some obscure like dissertation would have been about in history, perhaps, except there's something that happens here. These five kings, they come in, these four kings come in and rout the five kings, and when they do, they carry off... Uh, as they would, they would carry off the spoils, spoils of war, which included people, food, animals, wealth, whatever. They carried them off. And in that great uh, caravan of prisoners of war or spoils of war, there is Lot. You remember Lot? I can't not remember Lot if you're reading Genesis 12 and 13 because he's mentioned oh so many times. Um, but he shouldn't be in the story, right? I mean, technically... In Genesis 12, we have this great, this divine imperative from God where he meets Abram and Sarai and he says, go out from your land, your kindred, uh, and your home. Go, go away from everything you've ever known. And the next thing that we read is, and Lot went with them. Well, Lot is Abram's nephew. He's his brother's son, uh, and that's his kindred. So technically, even in the very beginning, 
uh, we see this wobbliness in, in Abram, which is sort of heartwarming for me because God, nevertheless, his grace is still at work. God has this plan and this purpose. He's going to use Abram and Sarai. They're not, they're not perfect pictures of obedience and faith. They're, they're human like us. And yet God is still faithful in this moment because the whole thing is Abram's story isn't over in chapter 12 when he doesn't sort of obey God in terms of his kindred, right? His story's not over because the whole thing about what it means to walk with God is this sense of, of the journey, this sense of maybe this word that we use in theology terms and this sanctification, this idea that this is a story that's being written as he grows closer to God, his life changes. This is a powerful thing to keep in mind as we read the story of this, of this patriarch and this matriarch, right? That, that they're human and God knows who they are and he's still at work in and through their lives despite the fact that they're wobbly, they're human, it's who, who we are. And yet he's still at work. And God had this plan and Abram and, and Sarah and Sarai are part of this plan that God is going to bless the world through this wobbly couple, Right? He's going he's gonna to do this despite their blunders along the way, which brings me back to Lot. Lot is here. Well, actually, he's in this caravan as the story opens up. He's in this caravan as spoils of war, uh, and he's there because he, would, he chose not to live with Abram and moved away from him. Earlier in Genesis 13, we discover that God has blessed Abram and Sarai, just as he said he would. And, and coincidentally, Lot is blessed in that process as well, so much so that they have this large herd of animals. They have lots of silver and gold. They have lots of stuff. So much so that it's putting pressure on the land and putting pressure on the people who were responsible for caring for the herd. And so they come to this moment in Genesis 13 where, the, where there's strife, these bitter discussions and arguments over this important thing about the livelihood of these animals and thus the livelihood of the people that's breaking out among Abram's people and Lot's people. But Lot, uh, Abram and Sarai don't want this bitter dispute. They don't want a division between themselves and Lot. But they know that something has to happen. And because of their trust in, in God's promises, because they know that God has promised because they have faith, as strong as they can have it, the faith in God will deliver his promises. They're able to be magnanimous. That's that word, that beautiful word. And so rather than have this bitter dispute and this division uh, with Lot, they, they separate. And they allow Lot, even though it's their right to, to pick whatever they want, they allow Lot to pick the, whatever land he wants to go. And if he goes to, to the left, they'll go to the right. If he goes to the right, they'll go to the left. They're going to separate. But they're going to separate in peace. They're not going to be this bitter division. They're going to separate in peace over this issue. They're going, to, they're going to maintain the relationship. And so Lot does what Lot does, and Lot chooses for himself. He doesn't seem to think about Abram and Sarai or the fact that he has what he has because God has blessed them. And so he chooses the, the posh Jordan River Valley because he sees it and it looks great, and he goes there, right? But we also learn in this text that he goes, uh, he goes as far as to, the, as to the edge of Sodom. Genesis 13 tells us that he moves and settles as close to Sodom as he can get. And it also tells us that Sodom is wicked. In fact, we, it's, in, it's in our own vocabulary. We, we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. We, it's like synonymous with wickedness and evil. But, you know, the thing about wickedness and evil is we like to think that that word is enough to deter us. But the reality is that there's something alluring about wickedness and evil. If there wasn't, we wouldn't be drawn to it. 
there's something about Sodom and Gomorrah that was probably attractive to Lot. Enough so that in chapter 14, we have this subtle little line, this little preposition in there that says, now Lot was dwelling in Sodom. So sometime between where he moved there and the time when this war breaks out, he has gone from living outside to inside. Something has happened that has drawn him in, and he has gone there. It's this sort of this slippery slope. Lot chose to dwell in Sodom, and things happened there. Whatever they were, those, those things did not please the Lord, which we find out later. In fact, they troubled Lot. Second Peter 2, 7 and 10 basically refers to, to Lot as righteous Lot, which I find confusing. Um, Peter says that Lot was troubled by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard daily. In fact, it says, and if God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the law, their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Whether Lot should have been there or not, it doesn't really matter because he was there, which is why he ended up as part of this caravan that's being carried off as spoils of war. And we're reading about it because he's, he is Abram's nephew. And this story in Genesis about God's choosing to use Abram and Sarai to bless the world with this eventual coming of Jesus, this Messiah, who's the savior of humanity. And suddenly, Abram and Sarah are pulled into this conflict, pulled into this war, because they have this relationship with Lot. And Lot had chosen to go somewhere he probably shouldn't have gone. But it doesn't really matter, because he has this relationship with Abram and Sarah, and Lot is their family. And they're going to go help him. And they can they can go help him because there's not a bitter divide between Lot and Abram because they ended that strife. They wouldn't let it happen. And so Abram is able to go and help. And the thing about this is that God had made these great promises in Genesis 12, these I wills as we've called them. He's made these great promises to Abram. I will give you a land. I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great name. I will bless you. And I will, I will bless those who bless you and I will, I will dishonor those who dishonor you. He gives these I wills. And you know what happens in this moment because Lot has messed up? You know what happens when Abram goes and he steps into this mess? God uses it to make Abram's name great and to allow him to see the land that he's going to give him. Even in this moment, God's grace is at work through the life of Abram, this mess that he's probably created by not this perfect obedience in the beginning. In verse 14 and 16, we read that when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive. He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit of these kings as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possession and the women and the people. Abram, with 318 men and some of his allies, uh, they went and they routed the four kings. He defeated them. Uh, the four kings defeated the five kings, which is significant if we think about it. And he pursued them. Not only did he, did he defeat them, but he pursued them as far as Dan and then a little further to Hobah and then like, like north to Damascus. That's a long way from where they started off at the Oaks of Mamre, right? Down towards Jerusalem. That's a long way that to have gone. He's walking this new land now, by the way. 
Remember when I read at the beginning of the chapter, remember in Genesis 13, 17 and 18, that God said, hey, Abram, I'm going to give you this land. I want you to go walk it. Remember what Abram did? It says that he settled at the Oaks of Mamre and built an altar. But guess what? He's walking now, right? And he's walking from where he was as far to the outer reaches, and he's chasing out these pagan kings from the land that God had promised him. Abram overcomes these four kings. We can talk about military strategy if you want to. Uh, doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, what we realize is that it's the Lord that has done this. That God has actually delivered the hands of his enemy into Abram's hands. And he has rescued Lot and all these other people. And he's brought them back. And God did it. All right. I mean, does that impress you at all? It does me. It impresses the socks off of me that this happened. And consider what would happen in just a moment. Abram is this landless alien. He has 318 men, which sounds like a lot, but it's not really in the face of all the others. What do you think that would do in terms of his reputation in the land? Suddenly, this landless alien has made a name for himself. And in fact, if we want to get really technical, He's the new king. He has gone and taken back everything that had been taken from the five kings. He has all the spoils of war. He has pushed out the other four kings out of their land. God said, I'll give you a land. I'm going to show it to you. And I'm going to make your name great. Which is exactly what he does in this moment. It's this powerful thing. Abram is now a name and he's seen more of the land that God was going to give him and his descendants. But if we think that the battle of the kings is over, we're wrong. In fact, the main battle is just about to begin. I want to invite you to have, use a little bit of redeemed imagination for a moment, and I want you to imagine uh, what that would have been like to have traveled how they traveled and to have fought how they fought and then have to travel back. Do you think perhaps you might be I don't know, weary, a little tired, a little worn out, a little bit. And now they're walking back, returning all these people, and you're victorious as Abram and Sarai. And then you make your way back to the Valley of the Kings. And all of a sudden, as you know the Valley of the Kings, this other king comes out of hiding. And it's the king of Sodom. And you, Abram, who is weary, enters this valley of the king. And the king of Sodom comes out and meets him. And that's when this real battle begins. Because Abram's confession of faith to the true king, the one king, is about to be tested. Probably in a way he wasn't totally prepared for. Because in this moment of weariness, I'm imagining, there are a few choices in front of Abram that would have, now that he is king, would have been, well, tough to sort out, right? I mean, in one sense, he's, he's got this win of his own. Now he's got this king of Sodom in front of him. And then within a little bit, he'll have this other king, this Melchizedek, who comes out of nowhere, this king of Salem, this priest of the Most High God. The king of Sodom shows up. We read in verse 21 that he says to Sodom, he says uh, to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. This wickedness has its appeal. Like, we may not really catch the nuances of what's happening here. 
especially when we're wearied, right? When we're wearied by life, when we're wearied by things, by things that are going on, like wickedness has this maybe even more of an appeal. And goods from Sodom would have been like the highest sense of luxury of the time, right? They would have been attractive to anyone. There's something powerful about this allure of that, so, that the king of Sodom puts out there. I think of Jesus when he's in the wilderness being, uh, after 40 days, he's wearied, right, by that experience. And who comes along but the devil to tempt him? He's wearied by it. Those are real temptations. And here is Abram hearing this, this appeal. And even though all these spoils, all this people and everything else already belong to Abram, this, um, this overture from the king of Sodom was a real temptation. There's a real battle here, right? Because um, the king of Sodom is, is, Sodom is playing his part. What would it mean for Abram to strike a deal with this king of Sodom, this pagan king? Well, it would put him in debt to a pagan king. It would make it seem as if the blessing that he has is coming from this pagan king, and he would kind of owe him. He would become a vassal. He would, it's, a, it's a trap, really. And it would impact his faith, perhaps, right? But remember, some of, of, of Abram's wealth came from Pharaoh. So there's a real moment here. And I think if Abram had been left alone, he would have capitulated. Because we know Abram, right? He has wobbly faith. The great thing is that there was a greater king in that battle than probably Abram even factored in or thought about. And that great king, that king of kings, actually sent a king of Salem king of peace, and the priest of the most high God. And that's where we catch this glimmer, this glimpse of the gospel at work in the life of Abram. And it's powerful. Because in the midst of his weariness, as I imagine it, I think there's this temptation, and God sent Melchizedek, who is this forerunner of Christ, to, to remind him of his blessing and his call, so that his, his confession wouldn't falter or waver. I can think of no other real explanation as to why Melchizedek shows up in this moment in Abram's story than it's God's grace towards Abram in the midst of something that could have tripped him up in a big, big way. It's this provision, this blessing that we can, we'll see even in this ultimate coming of the Messiah because Melchizedek shows up at this critical moment in the battle. I think to win Abram's heart and soul and point his actions to actually what Jesus does, even in this moment. In fact, the, the psalmist and the writer of Hebrews sort of connect this Melchizedek with the person of Jesus as this forerunner of the Messiah. Abram, uh, as we've seen it, his faith and obedience aren't impeccable. They're not the strongest. And God's grace overcomes it, does here. Genesis 14, 18 begins as Melchizedek, king of Salem, brings out bread and wine, Right? He was priest of God Most High, and he, and he blesses Abram. And he says, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gives him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek shows up and shows Abram how God operates in the world. The, the king of Sodom wants to enslave him. That's what wickedness does, right? It wants to enslave you, take things from you, put you in its control and its power, demand things from you. But look what God's grace does when it shows up in Melchizedek, in this, in this king, king of Salem, king of righteousness, king of Jerusalem, this, this priest of the Most High God. What does he do? 
How does God's grace manifest itself in this moment? Well, the first thing he does is, he's, is he physically nourishes Abram and his people with bread and wine. It's a luxury. They're weary. They've traveled. They've fought. They've struggled. Some of those people probably in that caravan had been abused. And he pours out wine and he gives them bread. That's what the king does. That's what the priest does. It's what grace does. It nourishes us. But it's not just a physical nourishment. It's a spiritual nourishment as well. As this king of Salem, this Melchizedek, pours out this blessing, speaks this language that, that, that Abraham is starting to hear, right? This language of God most high. And he pours out this blessing on him. And in this blessing, he reminds him that God is the king of kings. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. All this other stuff is nothing. It's God that has called you, right? And he pours out this blessing on him, reminds him of that. And in this moment, Abram is then able to hold fast to whatever confession of faith he has at this moment. That's the gospel of grace active in the life of Abram. Because that's what grace does as God speaks it into us. And so Abram has this act of worship where he recognizes that Melchizedek is this important, important person, so important. And so he gives him a tenth. And then he's able to turn away to this, to this thing that is synonymous with wickedness and say, I want no part of this. I want nothing from you. I don't even want a, I don't even want a piece of, of, of yarn that comes from your sandal. I want no part of this because I belong to and have raised my hand to, made an oath to, a confession to God, the possessor of heaven and earth. I love it because I think that Abram may have gotten lost had God not shown up in this moment through Melchizedek. His confession of faith may have been lost. He may have become enslaved to this king out of weariness, out of temptation. Abram needed this king of Salem this priest of the Most High to intervene, to nourish him, body and soul, and to point him to the one true king, and to bless him, and to remind him of God's calling and blessing on his life, so that Abram would hold fast to his confession and be used then to advance God's kingdom and God's purposes and be a part of this blessing the whole world through the eventual coming of the Messiah. And I think this story points to Jesus and the way Jesus is our Melchizedek. In our weariness, in our journey, in our wobbly faith, in our moments when we may capitulate towards wickedness or even think of ourselves as king, it's by God's grace that Christ came into the world to point us to this one true king, the king of kings, the possessor of heaven and earth, the one true king who intends not to enslave us, but to set us free from the bondage of sin and death and to use our lives to be a blessing to make Jesus known. The writer of Hebrews makes that connection with Jesus when he writes, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues to, as a priest forever, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the outer place, in the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek in Genesis, you'll remember a book that's full of genealogies. It doesn't mention his lineage, either as a king or a priest. He predates all of that, surpasses all of it. His kingship and his priesthood are 
outside of all of that, just as Jesus' kingship and his priesthood are outside and beyond all of that. That's that sense of this order. He's above the Levitical priesthood. And in our weary times when our faith is wobbly, like Abraham's often was, we should remember our Melchizedek, our Jesus, our high priest, who meets us in our own wilderness, who nourishes our soul weekly at this table, who calls us to remember God's blessings, who reminds us that God has and will keep his promises to us, who, like Melchizedek to Abram, helps us to remember our confession of faith and helps us hold true to it. We will trust in the name of the Lord and not turn or even begin to turn to this sense of wickedness that's in the world around us. The writer of Hebrews has this to say as well. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. In this moment of Abram's life, he's standing with this battle of kings all around him. And Melchizedek comes in and points him out to the one true king, which allows Abram to maintain and hold on to his confession and hold it fast. We're in a battle as well, all the time, a spiritual battle. Sometimes in our weariness, we might fall prey to and be sucked in and go towards things that we know that we shouldn't. But we have a great high priest. We have our own Melchizedek who steps into those places and reminds us to hold fast to our confession because he nourishes our soul and brings us to this remembrance of our own confession. Let me ask the Lord to help us as we step towards the table in just a moment. Father, I give you thanks and praise that you love us and that you're at work in the world around us, that you have made yourself known to us. I pray, Lord, that you would very much be our Melchizedek, intervening, pouring out the bread and the wine, helping us hold fast to our confession in the face of whatever challenges or adversaries we might face. Lord, help us. We ask that you be with us, that you would nourish us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.